Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Programming Throwdown, episode 36, Swift. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So, uh, yeah, last week I was involved in this uh, hackathon, which is, for people who don't know, it's it's basically, you know, you have some kind of a theme, and uh, your goal is to rather quickly come up with some prototype, which, um, you know, which demonstrates some cool... Uh, you know, some project that you that you've been working on. So, for example, um, you know, there might be a hackathon on, say, HTML5, and you make some like cool way to show videos in your website that's never been done before, or something like that. Um, it's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun. I've done a lot of these different hackathons, and you know, these 24-hour code challenges and design challenges and things like that. And Patrick, you've done a lot of rapid prototyping with Arduino and along those lines. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Everyone who's, uh, you know, if you're from a hobbyist to a professional, you should definitely give it a shot. There's a ton of them on the internet. Um, like if you're into games, there's the Ludum Dare challenge. Um, there's there's a ton. I'm sure whatever whatever topic you're interested in has some kind of, you know, hacking contest. And it's cool. It's a chance for you to sort of showcase something to the rest of the the world or at least to a community of like-minded people and get feedback and things like that so um, you would recommend hacking at hackathons definitely hack at hackathons yeah definitely i think sleeping at hackathons i wouldn't recommend that that, t- that typically doesn't happen that was what hacking. i would do <laughs> yeah so you'd, um yeah p- for people who don't know patrick has to get his eight hours otherwise not he turns into nine i don't know you're talking about eight you get nine hours of sleep most oh, nights man. Yeah. i'm, I'm totally a terrible jealous. person dude <laughs> terrible person i need my beauty rest <laughs> <laughs> oh man so we but gotta yeah, oh, oh, go, ahead. go ahead uh go ahead. But yeah in general you know a couple of tips for these hackathons number one um you know go with a plan and focus on the plan like start with the ui it's it's a complete opposite of an actual project like you want to think about it this way like think about at any moment the the hackathon could be over you know even though that's not true like there's usually you know 24 hours or something but just treat every hour like it's your last hour and in the sense that like you know don't don't like spend every hour like killing yourself as if you know it's you know a deadline or anything but you know after one hour you should have something like that you can at least look at even if it's just an empty screen like after two hours you should have something and and kind of work backwards and you'll notice you'll find that like a lot of your ideas that get thrown out are really ones that didn't matter. Like for example, in this hackathon, I wanted a settings page where people could sort of customize their experience. But, you know, I started backwards from the experience and I never got to the settings page. And if I had done that in the opposite order, I'd have nothing to demonstrate. I'd be like, "Hey guys, Here's my project. It's a settings page. <laughs> you know, I would have like, would have totally bombed. So, uh, you know, it's it's really good. Uh, rapid prototyping in general is a really good skill, and I say skill because it's not something you can learn. You have to just cultivate it, um, and I highly recommend it. So. Yeah, I think that's good advice to do it the opposite way you would normally do it. But I know a lot of people. Well, I guess you should somewhat. That mindset is applicable to everyday life or everyday work. But um, I, I, I agree. I saw a lot of people whenever you do these kinds of things or like even in school when people work on projects, they would end up with some sort of what they would call like tech demo at the end. They would worked a lot on some piece of infrastructure and then in the end they ended up with kind of nothing because they didn't, you know, it was just like a, some sort of processing in the background and no kind of good visualization way. If you start kind of like faking the data and make it look nice uh, and then kind of work back to actually make the processing it's easier for people to imagine or believe that you can do the hard part um in this scenario so yeah, for a prototyping exactly. that's really useful like is it worth investing in actually getting the algorithm to work right now in real life you may actually that is the key per- point right and so you don't care about the other stuff um but for demos it's much easier if you can say here's what it will look like when the when the algorithm works 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Yep. You have to sort of like, as I said before, you have to like plan beforehand. And that part you can do like kind of bottom up. Like when I had planned it before the hackathon started, I'd kind of started with the settings page and kind of drew little diagrams of sort of how I wanted it to look. But then when I actually got to coding, you know, when they started the clock or whatever, then it was, yeah, it was all about the UI. So, yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. You guys should definitely try it. So this week we have a question from Mike, and uh, I'll summarize. He wrote a little bit more, but that basically he's still in school and that he gets, every time he asks for career advice, people say to get involved in open source projects uh, or communities, and he was asking if we had any recommendations for that. Um, specifically, I actually don't have a great recommendation for an open source project to join. Um, I too also got this advice when I was in school um, and had the same thing. If you ask people, well, what open source project is good to join or is open for contribution, you always get this like, you know, we'll first start by helping to document the project or looking at the bugs and trying to fix bugs. But there's a lot of work you have to do to get to that point on any kind of mainstream open source project that you would know. I'm not saying you can't do it. And I know people vaguely who who have done it before. Um, but I think a lot of the open source project opportunities that you should be most interested in first are the smaller projects. Like maybe it's just one guy who has some interesting tool um, and you think of a new way that the tool could work because if it's just one guy, it's much more uh, likely that you're able to kind of understand the code base and make contributions more quickly, which in my opinion, when you're first starting out is uh, a better feedback mechanism because you see your work actually leading to something versus just spending like six months trying to figure out where to put your code. Um, you can actually make a contribution or, you know, even creating your own open source project for something that you've been using and you say, Hey, this might be helpful to someone and posting it up and see what other people that you, now you may get harsh criticisms or, you know, shocker. The internet has some people who are jerks um, <laughs> yeah. and they may say mean things about it, but some people will have legitimate like, Hey, you may want to, you know, consider this or you have a security problem here or, you know, whatever. And then that feedback can be really helpful. Um, and I think as far as like when it comes time for a job, you'll have learned some stuff there and you'll have something to point people to and say, here's work I did. But don't feel like you have to join like open SSL and make contributions or the Linux kernel or, you know, some one of these really big open source projects. Don't feel like when people say that that's good, like those are what they mean. There's a whole range of things that you can do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like unless you're, actually contributing to the Linux kernel because you it's your job or something like that. Like a lot of those huge code bases are actually a nightmare and it's nothing against them. It's just, that's just, you know, a lot of these things grow organically and uh, they don't grow in the, in the, you know, most pristine way. Right. And so, yeah, as Patrick said, your best bet is choosing something small and starting from there. Yeah. And there may be exceptions to rule, but it's the same thing. Like whenever you uh, start a new job or join a team, it's kind of weird because they went through a lot of effort to get you or hire you or bring you on. But then it's always like, it's been my experience that many times when you first join a team, nobody kind of has the time to help you. Everybody's too busy to help you, right? They need your help, but not right now because they don't have time to kind of help you get started. And so, right. you know, nice people will point you in general direction, but you spend your first few weeks kind of twiddling your thumbs a lot because no one has the time right now to help you with something. And I think that's just kind of one of those facts of life of way things work out that uh, open source projects are probably similar. The guys or girls contributing are spending their time doing their contributions and then bringing on new people is probably like a second priority to them. And so it's you know, like, again, except maybe in some exceptions, they're probably more interested in, in spending their time actually doing the work. Uh, right. And so that's what makes it difficult to join if you're not just super, super self-motivated, which some people are. And, you know, I'm glad there are people like that in the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, that's really good advice. Start something small, preferably something you work on yourself. And, uh, you know, if you, GitHub has kind of reached this critical mass now where, I mean, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to like search specifically in GitHub for projects. Like the other day I needed a, a node.js um, LDAP uh, library. And I just went straight to GitHub and I found some guy's library that he wrote in his spare time. It's just a one-man operation and uh, and grabbed it. And I found there were some bugs in it. I filed bugs. I made some changes. And so, um, so if you put your project on GitHub, write some decent documentation. And if it's something pretty niche, 
or you're doing it better than than everyone else um you know you'll you'll generate interest definitely all right cool. time for news so yeah this is i think this might be uh the first time on the show we've ever made a mistake no i'm pretty sure it may be sure. our first legitimate uh, official retraction but i i uh well no i went and read all i listened to all the old episodes and it turns out we never made any mistakes until now it's shocking but uh <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we announced last episode that Twitch was uh, was going to be bought by Google. Um, we showed what uh, what luddites we are um, when Twitch got bought by Amazon <laughs> a few days ago. It turns but, out people uh, were overstating their belief in the rumor that Twitch would be bought by Google, and we like the terrible people we are. Man, I'm saying that too much tonight. The, the, <laughs> like the people we are, the uh, innocent not believing that the internet could ever have a lie on it we just took it and said oh that must be true and yeah but uh according yeah according to this forbes article um you know they were about to be bought by google but there were some issues um related to antitrust and things like that actually let me let me be more clear there were issues about the potential of antitrust litigation that could happen but didn't actually happen so what did um, he has no idea and he's not a lawyer and, uh, and it's all, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. part is all so, still rumor <laughs> that's right um that's right well it's on this forbes article um yeah but, uh, but yeah you're right it's not it's not validated in any way um but yeah so amazon bought them which i think is pretty cool um you know i personally have never liked the youtube kind of user experience i'm um, like in fact if you want to see the current live streams on YouTube, you actually have to go to this crazy like YouTube slash and then this hexadecimal string. And that's the only way to get a list of the live streams. And so, I mean, I know that YouTube's not, live streams aren't really their thing, but still I just, I feel like the UI, I just never really been happy with YouTube um, from an experience standpoint. And so, you know, it's kind of like- You mean specifically for live streaming. That's what you're talking about though, right? Or like in general, you just don't like YouTube. I like the service. I don't feel like the UI, the, the user experience is okay. there. That's my opinion. Um, okay. Anyway, I can go on a soapbox about that, but I'll spare everyone. But, uh, and, and actually, you know, a, lar- a lot of the internet, a lot of Reddit and things like that have, have echoed similar statements. Um, oh, so you read something on Reddit. I see now. I see where this is going. Yeah, I've been blinded by Reddit. <laughs> no, but I know actually I was, it was kind of for me it was a little bit of a, um, it was kind of a relief to see other people thought the way I did because sometimes I think I'm just I'm just crazy. <laughs> no, that's true. But, well, yeah, that's also true. Anyway, so uh, they got bought by Amazon, uh, which is pretty cool. You know, my guess is that Amazon will leave them, um, you know, as is. Uh, Amazon tends to do that with a lot of their acquisitions. They don't really, um, you know, try to run their life or anything, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think Twitch is pretty great. I've actually been been listening to a lot of streams um, while I've been working. So last time we talked fun. about the Dota to the international. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what have you been watching on Twitch since that's over now? So, so you obviously weren't watching. There's that. a guy who you're not gonna believe this. There's a guy who is this uh, fish play Pokemon. I've seen that, which okay. is pretty awesome. I've also seen Goldfish play Street Fighter. Oh, maybe that's um, what I'm thinking of. I don't there's, know. there's both. There's okay. both. Um, but the one I saw is this guy. He's a chef. And he just kind of talks about food and stuff. And he also does these like speed eating challenges. So, oh, so example, it has nothing like, to do with video games. So you watch mm, live streams of non-video not games. Not really, yeah. So, so I thought Twitch so, was like solely about video games. Well, um, it could be whatever you watch, right? I, I mean, don't know. they can't really. <laughs> I don't know. I've only ever I mean, watched video games on it. It is video game centric. There's no doubt. But there's there's no nothing to stop you from doing whatever you want. Right? Oh, okay. So this guy actually, the last time I saw him, heard him, he ate a pizza a medium-sized Domino's pizza in a minute, 16 seconds. <laughs> That's just gross. I know. It's unbelievable. And, and uh, yeah, you just got to see it. If you go on YouTube, you can watch a, a replay. Wait, wait, wait. Or, wait. Or so I, I can go on. Oh, this is confusing. I have to go on YouTube to watch a replay of a Twitch TV live stream? Uh, yeah. Or maybe you can watch it on Twitch. Okay. I mean, does Twitch okay. have it's replay? Okay. Anyways, w- where this is a digress, digression. But uh, you should watch it. It's pretty cool. Uh, just put like "guy eats Domino's pizza" in in two minutes or something like that. Okay, guy eats Domino's. His name is Caleb Hart. Um, so 
Here, I'll put it in parentheses in the show notes. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's pretty epic. It's a very large man, and, and he eats a pizza very quickly. Okay. Interesting. All right, I'll have to check yeah. that out later because I'm going to get distracted <laughs> if I read that right now. So my next news story is not a news story at all. Well, not, it's not really news, but it's a blog post that I read, and we were discussing this at work uh, and sharing our anecdotal stories about it. Uh, and the guy, uh, the blog, well, you have the link in the, the show notes. Um, but basically, it's called Norris Numbers. That's the title of blog post. Makes it always sound awesome. I wish I thought of cool names to title stuff like this, like the <laughs> Norris Number. So uh, this guy is writing about a friend who has a quote about a friend or something who is called Norris, Cliff Norris. And he says that the Norris number is the amount of code an untrained programmer can write before they hit a wall. Um, And so they were talking about like the estimates of it or whatever, like 1,500 lines of code, 2,000 lines of code. Now there's a whole thing you can get on about if a line of code is a good measure or bad measure or what it measures. But leaving all that aside, I, I feel like this is a good point that when you talk to people who are just fresh out of university or while you're in university um, or school that you write code that's very certain manner and very like architecture seems to be really lacking in most of those projects because it's not what it's about. And you'll never write enough code that architecture will, will kind of really matter because you're not right. going to maintain it. You only are going to work on it for a few weeks. So you can just kind of spit out code and you in some ways are very efficient because you know you're going to stop. Um, but that kind of doesn't work in the workplace. But yet in the workplace, the coding initially kind of comes out the same way. And it takes kind of training and, and thinking and uh, experience to be able to kind of write something more than these people are claiming about 2,000 lines of code. We'll, we'll go with that for now. So once you get above 2,000 lines of code, for instance, you start having problems like if your organization of what code is in what files or what classes um, and how the data flows, not a performance problem, but a like, how do I move around the code? Um, and if someone else might be working on it, right? Like, how do we work on two things at the same time? So you have to kind of learn those things before you can get to, they're saying, the next wall, which this guy's saying is like 20,000 lines of code. And when you get to 20,000 lines of code, uh, that you can still kind of have like a, you know, loosey-goosey approach if there's multiple people, for instance. But then if you want to make it to like 200,000 lines of code, you need even more very strict organization. You need like uh, someone really writing the, for instance, like uh, style guides because you need the code to be consistent, uh, deciding what goes in and out of the project. Um, So like not adding features just because they might be nice to have, but actually only writing the features you need. Uh, and so he's just kind of talking about these like leveling up as a programmer. And I thought it was an interesting read because I, I personally, I don't read a lot of articles that talk about the craft of programming like that. Uh, and so it was kind of interesting to read. And then thinking in my own kind of growth, how that like, oh yeah, initially you write spaghetti code and then you realize like that doesn't work. And then you do other stuff and how that like you, as you're leveling up the complexity and uh, size of the project, how you have to bring new techniques to bear. And a lot of times you don't know them initially like you don't know how to write a 200,000 line of code project um and then you kind of learn it over time and figure out what works and doesn't work uh, but then you keep hitting these things that prevent you from growing even bigger yeah this is, this is really interesting yeah I, I think uh it's really interesting because you can kind of see the wall coming like for example there's one project i worked on where there was effectively like a like a main control loop file that was, you know, like 20,000 lines of code Whoa. in one file. And you just know that the wall is like evident, <laughs> you know? Like you just know that like what they're doing is unscalable. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, even if you look at smaller projects, you could start to see something where you, it's like, okay, this isn't going to, this is going to end badly. <laughs> yeah, and in one measure is kind of velocity, right? Like. And even this is a little off topic from what this is talking about, but I've noticed in my own projects that, that, you know, when I work on that work, that you go through these cycles and some people call it like technical debt. But like if you can keep throwing more people and work harder and trying to like add more features, um, but at some point if you're not kind of thinking through like re-architecting the system, you eventually get this organic growth problem where you start to lose a lot of velocity and trying to just keep things working. <laughs> Uh, right. And then you have to kind of do a re-architecting and then you can go really fast again. 
Um, yeah, like a very common problem you see is like, for example, you know, if there's some class and the class is a variable called, you know, latitude. And then you end up with like another variable called previous latitude. And then somebody realizes, oh no, I need three levels deep. So I need like previous, previous latitude. And then you find out, oh, I need uh, I need an array of latitudes, like a history. So you create like a array called like latitude history, but then you're in a hurry, so you don't delete the previous latitude. You keep it around. And then like you can just see like yeah. this, and you just know that this is going to end badly or like you're going to need some kind of major refactoring at some point. Yeah, the current problem I work, work try to work through is whether or not like when you first start a project, how much time do you spend architecting? Because you could spend kind of an infinite amount of time stuck trying to figure out what to do without ever doing anything. Um, yeah. And so you've got to get started at some point. So you kind of have to pick the lines, even if you know the requirements may change. So you kind of have to do your best and and trade off like getting going versus flexibility. Because you could write the most flexible system in the world, but it doesn't do anything. It's just really flexible. <laughs> it That's can right. do you anything, to- but it does nothing. Yeah, you have to make the trade-off between being data-driven and building a Turing machine, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, like, on one end, uh, you want, you know, for example, like CSS, right? If you're building a website, you don't want to have all of your style in the HTML, and then every time you want to change, you know, or in the JavaScript, and every time you want to, you know, make a font bigger, you have to go and hack code. But on the flip side, you don't want to create some, like, wild you know, thing that compiles to something which compiles to CSS so that you can just, like, write everything. Then you've basically just, like, kind of created your own language that you're going to have to code in, and you haven't really gotten anywhere. And so somewhere in between there is is kind of the sweet spot. Yep. Yep. All right. Cool. So, yeah, my next news is also not really a news, but it's it's, uh, it's a really, really good read for people who are interested in in this kind of uh, sampling methods. It's called... Um, Gibbs sampling for the uninitiated. Um, and as the name suggests, or as the name actually just outright says, you don't have to be initiated on Bayesian methods or sampling methods to, to understand what's going on in this, in this paper. But uh, just to give you kind of a, uh, like a little preamble. Um, so you know this, uh, have you seen this where um, if you have, say, like a circle inscribed in a square and you randomly throw darts at the square, um, you can estimate. Uh, so, okay, one thing is, let's say you have some circle inscribed in a square and you want to know the area of that circle or, mm. or you want to know a random point on that circle. Let's start there. So one way to do it is to just you know throw darts at the circle randomly or throw darts at the square, because you can easily do that. You just pick a random X within the range of the square and pick a random Y, and you throw a dart there. If the dart hits the circle, then you use that point. You say, here's my random point on the circle. If the dart misses and hits like the little corners around the circle on the outside of the circle, then you throw another dart, and you don't count that dart. And so it turns out, this is called like rejection sampling. And so it turns out, like, this is fine. Like, like, like doing these darts and throwing some of the darts away is the same as, like, a, from a math standpoint as, like, picking a random spot from the circle. But it's a lot easier to do because, you know, it's easier to pick a random spot in a square and then throw some of them out than it is to, like, figure out the equation for all the random spots that could be in a circle, right? Okay. So this is sort of like an easy way to do a hard thing, right? Um, and so you can actually But you still have to know what's in the circle versus not. That's right, because it's easier to know whether you're in the circle or not than it is to, like, know the distribution of points in a circle. Like, that second one is hard, okay. right? Um, so... The uh, so and you can do this to approximate pi, right? You can like, you know that if you throw, like a hundred darts, that all hundred of them will end up in the square, but some fraction of those darts will end up in the circle, 
And then based on that, you know the area of the circle, right? As like a fraction of the area of the square. And then you can actually uh, approximate pi, like if you throw enough of these darts. So this is an idea where like you, you use a bunch of random numbers and you figure out, um, <coughs> like in this case, pi, you figure out the value of pi by like what's called Monte Carlo sampling. You just try a bunch of random numbers and slowly, slowly the number you're looking for gets closer and closer to pi, right? But you can also use it for distributions. Like as I was saying, if you wanna pick a random spot on the circle, you can use this rejection technique and you can effectively like sample from the circle. And so like if you're doing like computer vision kind of stuff, this is pretty useful. Um, so this is cool for say like circles, but if it gets really complex and like in some high dimensional space, you're doing some machine learning and you need to sample from some really complex shape in a really high dimension, then like these rejection sampling techniques break down because you end up just rejecting everything or rejecting you know, like 99.9999% and just nothing gets done. So this is one way to deal with that. It's called Gibbs sampling. Um, and uh, hopefully they do a much better job than I just did <laughs> talking about this whole thing. It's pretty complicated to cover, but uh, it starts you from the ground up and it starts by talking about just like basic statistics, like counting and you know, things like that. And they work you through going from there to, to this Gibbs sampling, which is kind of like the de facto way to, to, to solve this problem. Um, so I thought it was a really great read. And I thought for people who aren't familiar with this and are interested, um, um, they should definitely, definitely give it a shot. Oh, I'll have to try. I, I skimmed it, but uninitiated doesn't mean ignorant. So I, I need Gibbs <laughs> yes. sampling for the ignorant. <laughs> need uh, the dummies for dummies. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess this could have been the tool of the show, but I didn't have time to try it out. So just making a news item. Uh, Hyperlapse is a new app released from Instagram. And I, I saw something similar from Microsoft, and I don't understand the connection. I feel like it was also called Hyperlapse. Um, but this Hyperlapse from Instagram allows you to record a video on your iPhone. I don't think it has Android yet, but iPhone. And... Uh, like you walking down the street in New York City. And of course, like as you walk, you kind of, the camera moves up and down. It's not stabilized, right? And so then what they do is make a kind of a time lapse where they fast forward you through the video, but also kind of stabilize as you go. So you, you've probably seen these effects in various movies or commercials or whatever. Um, or the other classic one is like you point at the clock in the center of uh, Grand Central Station. Uh, there's some fancy clock and you point at that and you have all the people like whisking around you, right? Um, and so you could set up a tripod and do this, or, you know, if you could stabilize a video, you can just kind of hand hold it for a while and you get these really interesting effects. You know, Instagram's all about filters, I guess. Well, it's all about a lot of things, but you know, people on Instagram like filters. So this is using time as a filter and okay. uh, it seems pretty interesting. So I'm definitely going to be checking it out, but I think it just was announced or released like today, 13 hours ago, it says. So this is like is fresh off the, the presses. Is this the same as the, uh, like in Google Plus, they have the auto awesome, where if you take a bunch of pictures that look like they're a sequence, it'll build a movie out of it. Is this the same thing or is this different? So, you, but that doesn't try to like give a coherent viewpoint, for instance, right? Like it, it'll just stitch them together. Um, right. This one actually tries, it takes video and essentially tries to make a cool looking fast forward of the video that stabilizes. So if you just fast forward normal oh. video, it's kind of like blurry, but this stabilizes it. So it actually like, Oh, now I see what you're saying. All right, yeah. So you just watch like, the video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll check it out. It sounds cool. So it definitely is. It, it's cool. It's, it's just like a, uh, better fast forward basically. Okay. So, um, because you know, you have certain videos that are cool. Like you're, you know, on some beautiful drive through a, a cool town or on like a train or an airplane or something and you're flying over stuff and it's cool. But if you have to watch it at real time, it's like uh, very boring. No one wants to watch it. So wait, what's wrong with watching in fast forward? It's blurry. Well, it's not that it's yeah, kind of blurry because you're, you're bouncing around, right? Like the train is vibrating a little oh, oh, and, and you know, so you're you kind of like moving left and right. So they're trying to pick a point and kind of keep the, what the perceived viewpoint as if you were stabilizing the camera as if the camera was being held very stable at a certain point 
I see. So they're like basically registering the frames yeah. together. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. like, okay, got it, got it. And there's some cool, stuff about cool. how they did it. We can read about. It. Anyways, yeah, I need to out. jump on the Instagram thing. I totally missed that boat. I missed every social, every boat. Yeah, we were just talking about this before the show. We're we are not socialites. We're the anti-socialites when it comes to social networks. Okay, book of anyway, the show. My book of the show is Denial: Why Business Leaders Fail to Look Facts in the Face and What to Do About It. Um, so this is pretty interesting. Um, it actually it covers several different companies that have you know either completely failed or had to had to reinvent themselves. Um, and it covers it, it goes way back in time. It actually covers Henry Ford and the Model T. Um, this so for people who don't know, um, you know someone told Henry Ford, hey, we should do the Model T in different colors because there are people who like you know the aesthetics. Uh, you're changing the aesthetics and he said no and then other car companies started making cars that were you know red or or yellow or painted however you want and people loved it and he still said no and then people stopped buying his cars <laughs> and that's that's how that sad story ended um, yeah, it was really that story actually yeah and, and and a lot of these are are actually quite um sad but there's there's a lot to take away from them I haven't read the book yet, but it is recommended uh, to me by uh, by a friend, and I'm definitely going to give it a read. But it it covers you know tech industry, it covers various ones. There's actually you know uh, how they have the tamper-proof seals on like pretty much everything. Like water has a tamper-proof seal now, but um, that all started because someone some someone who is just a just a, a, a sociopath was poisoning bottles of Tylenol. They're actually taking capsules of, I think it was like cyanide and, and uh, that were white to look like Tylenol capsules and putting them in Tylenol bottles and killing people. And, uh, and of course, you know, people's natural reaction is to blame Tylenol and sue the Tylenol company. And, uh, you know, after many months, they found out that it was this, this, this sociopath and they caught him and everything. But this is all about sort of how they dealt with that. Because, you know, from their perspective, they just saw people using Tylenol and dying, right? And, and, and uh, anyways, all of these, each chapter is a different company with a, with a company, you know, breaking pandemic and, and, and how they dealt with that or didn't. Uh, and so, you know, I just thought it was a, just a phenomenally interesting um, uh, interesting idea, and I'll definitely be reading it this week. Mine is not nearly well. Maybe it's more interesting, less interesting. Doesn't <laughs> seem as applicable, as uh, useful to your life as uh, Jason's nonfiction book. So <laughs> okay. previously, I had recommended a book by Scott Lynch called "The Lies of Locke Lamora," and uh, this is actually a series. And so the next two books, "Red Seas Under Red Skies" and "The Republic of Thieves." Uh, I've read both of them now, and so I will recommend them as well. Basically, recommending now at least the first three books. Um, I really liked the first book a lot, um, and the second and third book didn't disappoint. I guess they, you know, when you read a first book, sometimes like a whole new universe, right? So it's kind of hard to keep it up through many books, right? Um, right. Especially if they didn't think they would be writing a second book. So I think this person did, Scott did, and uh, they did a good job. So it's not like world building as much. Like there's a lot of weird things in the world and they've not really revealed much more, I guess. But, um, you know, the story advances, the characters advance. And uh, I, I kind of like the, actually the second book. I like the first book a lot and I think I like the second book uh, a lot too. The third book I'm kind of wishy-washy on. Uh, I'm glad I read it because I wanted to find out what was happening to the people. Um but I didn't care for the style. The style is different, actually, in each of the three books. Like, the <clears throat> instead of the same thing, like, you know, you read some books, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Some books, and, like, the same things happen to the characters every time. Like, the characters don't seem to be learning. <laughs> and it's just, oh, like, I a see. good story, right? Because, like, yeah, it's like, oh, like James flat. Bond, like a James Bond book, right? Like, James yeah. Bond doesn't really, much doesn't carry over. He doesn't really get better or smarter <laughs> through each book. Um, and sometimes the books are about like the characters getting smarter uh, and more powerful as the books go on. And then in this one, it seems almost as if 
they're just putting them in very different scenarios and almost a different style of writing for each of the books. And I kind of enjoyed that. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll check that out. Time for tool of the show. All right. I'll try not to, you know, uh, go into hyperbole here and I'll save a little bit of time. My tool is actually rather simple. It's next door. Um, but you left it next door. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty cool. Basically you, uh, you validate your address with them and there's just a variety of different ways you can do that. Um, and then it's effectively yet another social network that I probably won't participate Aww. in. But, uh, but this one's kind of cool. You know, if you're having like a garage sale and you want to know if like your neighbors, want to uh, have a garage sale with you at the same time or something like that. You can basically, it's like a, you can think of it as like a forum or a message board, but it's um, private to your neighborhood. And uh, there's a separate message board that's private to like the, all the neighborhoods within five miles. Um, but because you know, you've validated your address, you typically don't have to worry about spam and things like that. Oh, at least I, I have heard yet. about this. Yeah, it seems pretty cool. And they were you saying know, actually like a ton of people, like I, a lot of neighborhoods have been registered already on this. Like it was kind of crazy, like how much it's catching on, but no one seems to really be talking about it yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I signed up. Uh, my, my neighborhood was definitely already on. There's a number of people from my neighborhood who are already on. Um, you know, what I've found is I, I was just browsing some of the some of the content and I just didn't see a lot of content. I mean, there's maybe one message every three months. And most of the time, it's just complaining. It's not really useful. So that that was kind of sad, actually. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see what develops. I mean, uh, you know, this could... Uh, I, I, I see great potential. Yeah, It's just a matter of, will, you know, whether people will realize that potential or not. Interesting. All right. Yeah. My tool of the show is Waze, a uh, GPS navigation app, and as if we needed another. But this one is, I, <laughs> I has some features I like. So it also has some sort of social networking points earning thing uh, that I don't use. Um, <laughs> and, but the idea is that uh, some people do and it makes the network better because what it tries to do is use, I feel like we had to have talked about this before, but I looked it up and I haven't seen it. Uh, it didn't come up that we had talked about this before. Um, mm-hmm. So if I did, I apologize. Uh, but if not, this is awesome ways people <laughs> enter like there's a policeman ahead or, you know, there's a traffic camera here or, um, you know, traffic got, there's a traffic accident, you know, on the right side of the road up ahead and people enter these things. And so if you keep the app up while you're driving, um, you'll get alerts coming through and it'll ask you to even like validate, like, do you see an accident up ahead? Right. So they know when it clears and stuff. And, oh, cool. and gives warnings. But the thing for me, it seems more like every GPS app now says that they do kind of real time traffic, but this one seems to do a better job of it because they seem to be more quick about feeding back in like actual user reports and stuff. And it'll even show you on the map, like all the people driving around who have the app open. Um, so living in the San Francisco Bay area, there's like, I forget, like each morning it tells me there's like 2000 people using it. Um, wow. which is not a ton, but at, like in a commute, there's already like 2000 people on the road. Um, and if you kind of spread them out, this is not that big of an area. So that's a lot of data points that they get uh, in real time. Um, yeah, it's great. And they're feeding it back in and it works really well. They're now actually owned by Google. So I guess they'll be integrating something with the Google stuff soon. Um, cool. but I like this app and I use it every morning to check which I have several potential ways I can go to work and I always look on this and see which way I should go. Um, but yeah, like okay. all, all GPS apps, there's slight problems where like if I leave now and, and my commute's a little longer, so by the time I'm halfway through, right, it's like 20, 30 minutes later. So traffic has changed a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden there's an accident in front of you and you can't really do anything. But, about but they that. know like every day there's at least one accident. So I feel like they should <laughs> know. anyways. Yeah. That's right. They should just predict like. Like, Patrick, what are you thinking? Come on. <laughs> you know that I'm going to give you an accident. So, yeah. I, I Anyways. All right. <laughs> all right. On to discussion Swift. So, um, so, Swift is a new language that was introduced by Apple, uh, I guess, a month or two ago. Um, but it's been in development for a few years now. And basically, the point about Swift is to replace Objective-C. So, um, you know, Objective-C was popularized, um, you know, as, you know, being the only language that you could use to uh, to make iPhone apps. 
Um, and uh, it's also used to make you know, OSX apps and things like that. And, uh, and Objective-C is a open source, has an open source compiler, so you could really use it to make anything in theory. Um, and so Swift is meant to sort of come in and, and replace Objective-C um, and just kind of make developing for any of those devices a little bit easier. Um, so <coughs> it, uh, it has a variety of features, many of which you know we've talked about on other episodes, um, but we'll cover them briefly. So it has a static typing with type inference. So if you um, uh, listen to our Haskell episode, you know all about that. Um, but basically, you know, it has the static typing. So, you know, you can't try to, you know, you know, set an int equal to a string or anything like that. But most of the time, you don't have to put the type either, which is what makes the dynamic type languages popular, right? You can just say i equals 3, and it knows that i should be an integer. But it has to be, um, it has to be an integer from then on. Well, that's from right. then on. It has that's to, right. every reference of i needs to be an integer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But uh, you know, I feel like that's true. I feel like with dynamic languages, you should be doing that anyway. I mean, that's like a personal. Yeah. That's a pet peeve. I, there I, seems to be there should be some reason. There's probably some clever thing you can do where I can be equal to literally anything. Kind of the null pointer hack. But also, null pointers are dangerous. Or vo void pointers. Sorry, not null pointers, but void pointers. Right. It's kind of right. the same thing. A void pointer can be literally anything you want. Uh, so, but yeah, it's just, it just idea. leads to just drama. Yeah. Um, so it also has generics, which is huge. I mean, Objective C still had like just array. And then if you wanted like an object out of the array, you have to say, like, you know, get me the item at index one and then cast it to whatever. And, you know, theoretically, you could have an array where the first thing's a string, the second thing's a number, the third thing is something else. And that's a terrible idea. Don't don't ever write code like that. I mean, if you really need, like, for example, think about, like, say, JSON. In JSON, you know, uh, an array could hold, you know, numbers and other arrays and maps in it, right? So, like, create a class that has those three things and, and make one of them non-null, right? Like... Like, don't try and rely on the compiler and the runtime, you know, casting to solve that problem for you, you know? Um, so, yeah, so generic is like pair. So you say, like, I want a pair, but I want both things in the pair to be of the same type, but I don't know which type they will be. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so with generics, you know, that's when you're writing the pair class. But as someone who's using the pair class, you could say, like, this is a pair of an int and a double or this is an array of strings um, versus Objective-C where everything was just a pair and array and you used casting to, to, to talk about what you meant. Um, it has string templating, which is pretty awesome. It's something that not a lot of people take advantage of. So a you mean built-in support for this, it. or is this a library that they have? It, a built-in support, oh. yeah. So, so for Java, for example, you have to use the string template third-party library to get this. Um, but but in general, this is pretty awesome. I mean, basically, you know, you you could imagine like um, having a string and then saying like in embedded in the string could be say like percent name percent, and then wherever you see percent name percent, it changes it to some variable. So that's basically what templating is, and it's a way to sort of write code that's you know very data driven so wait so um, the way this works is like if i have a string that says hello percent name i don't know is that the syntax hello yeah, the syntax it's actually it's like slash open parentheses and slash close okay. parentheses but yeah so so if you have hello and then the special thing indicating name and name is currently set to json and then i say print that string it'll say print hello json and then if i say exactly. the string is now equal to patrick and I print the string again. Oh, sorry, the name is now equal to Patrick, and I print the string again and say, hello, Patrick. Exactly, okay. exactly. All right. Yeah, so string tumbling is very useful. Um, it has closures and has functions as first-class citizens. So I think we talked about these in the Haskell episode. Um, so one thing you'll notice already is that Swift borrows a lot from functional programming. Um, and so it's actually very similar to Java 8. Um, when that when that comes out, so you'll notice a lot of similarities there. Um, it also has operator overloading, 
which is uh, pretty cool, especially if you're doing math stuff. You know, like, I don't know if you've had to deal with this, Patrick, but, like, in, in these, like, uh, have you ever used, like, the Java matrix libraries? You know, or I've, I've libraries? mixed minds about operator overloading. Sometimes it's convenient, but sometimes it's not because if, you know, like, we have, I'm not a uh, high-level algebra person, but, like, you know, I kind of have, like, a feeling for how a plus should work. And so mm-hmm. if you have something and define the operator as plus and the plus doesn't work kind of how I've conceptualized it to work, uh, it's kind of bad because I tend to just use the plus without going and looking up the comments you wrote about how plus works versus if you oh, wrote a I function uh, that I had to call and I needed to go look up the name, I'm probably also likely to read the comments about like any sort of warnings or you know the exact usage of it. Um, so for me, operator overloading is kind of scary because I've had instances where I used an operator that I thought should work in a certain way and it just doesn't. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm trying to think I, of a I good example off the top of my head, but I, I'm not, it's, it's escaping me right now. Yeah, I mean, well, one of them, the one I've seen is, you know, when you have two vectors and you do multiply. Yeah, yeah, that's a good sometimes example. Sometimes you get the dot product or sometimes you get a vector where it's like component-wise multiplication. Yeah. And it's like you kind of really know what you're going to get. Um, I do see that as a problem. I think, you know, I've, you know, I've been like, not burned, but I've been frustrated with doing like uh, matrix operations in Java. You end up with this mess where it's like, a dot add parentheses b like dot multiply you know what i mean it just kind of it looks so hideous yeah and i think haskell had a good way of dealing with that where like you can write any function as infix so like you're saying like a dot add open paren b right you can just write Mm -hmm. a add b oh yeah that's right Right? so you can do it or you can say uh add a b yeah, yeah so, right. so you can do them, yeah, so you can get what you're talking about. Like, I think that's kind of like, well, I, I mean, maybe it's not as, as easy to do in something like Swift or whatever, but I think that's actually a really nice uh, feature of Haskell that you can do it that way so that you can actually write out the thing um, but use it in the middle if you want. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that, like, uh, I think both of these are good. I think the Haskell idea is probably, I agree, it's probably better because you could have a name that's pretty descriptive, like a, like a... Mult, mult piecewise or something, instead of using a multiplication yeah, yeah. sign. But uh, but yeah, either way, it's it's. I think it's both of them are better than the Java seven way. I think Java eight has operator overloading. But at any rate, um, so those are basically the big features. You'll notice like Swift um, by itself, it doesn't really do anything brand new, but it takes a lot of ideas from different languages. And, uh, and kind of brings them together, which is pretty cool. Um, it's uh, using LLVM. So I think we've talked about LLVM in the past. I'm sure we have. LLVM stands for uh, yeah, low-level virtual machine. Um, so, um, for example, like say Java, you write Java code, <coughs> and then the Java code um, gets compiled to what's called Java bytecode, and then there's a JVM, which... Um, executes that bytecode, right? So LLVM and also another one called CLI, in which is for which is Microsoft's kind of version of LLVM, and it's for C Sharp and and VS uh, VB.net and those things. So both of these guys kind of take it to the next level. So they have an LLVM interpreter, just like Java has the JVM. They have the LLVM, and you can compile your code to bytecode and run it just like you can in Java, but you can also go from LLVM bytecode to machine code. So that's the thing that Java does not have. Um, Now, you know, if you go to machine code, there's no going back, right? I mean, like now you've built something that only works on, you know, uh, an iPhone or something like that. but that extra step allows you to do sort of a lot of cool optimizations while at the same time having the advantage of the the vm when you need it for it also has the advantage that, like uh, that for optimization you can do work on if you're a person interested in taking something from the llvm bytecode to the machine code 
and coming up with clever ways of recognizing patterns of operations in the LLVM bytecode, then and producing machine code that's optimal for uh, whatever, like Pentium Pentium threes. I don't know. Nobody uses those anymore. <laughs> but Pentium threes, like that, that just for some reason has this one instruction that you love and you, you figure out a way to generate bytecode to that. Then anyone who has any language in the front end compiles into LLVM bytecode can take advantage of that optimization for Pentium threes. So whether it's coming from Swift or Objective C or regular C, if it's in that intermediate format of LLVM bytecode, you kind of don't care where it came from because you can recognize patterns there and produce the optimal machine code. That's right. So both Objective C and LLVM, oh sorry, and Swift go to this LLVM bytecode. And then from there, they're both treated the same way. So all the work that's gone into, you know, going from LLVM to machine code for Objective-C doesn't have to be duplicated for Swift. Yay for standards. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, isn't that weird? It's kind of like a standard by example, you know? It's not really a standard, but it's like, it's a reference. Well, so I mean, the alternative, uh, and this starts to get a little uh, outside of where I n have a lot of knowledge about, but the alternative, if you take kind of the GCC project, they also use a kind of, it is, they don't call it bytecode, but they have an intermediate language. So the, right. their front end's compiled to this intermediate language, but they kind of only ever meant for it to be used by their project. And so it has all sorts of nuances and complexities, and it's very difficult to work with. Um, but it's very, very optimized. Like you get really good code out of GCC a lot of times. Um, right. But this LLVM was kind of from the ground up always intended to be used in this way by many, many different front ends uh, and for producing optimal against different back ends. So they kind of designed it that way. So they made certain choices that kept it easy to use. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's not really a standards. Like I don't think there's a standards body that does it, but like, they made it and said, hey, this would probably, other people will, might want to use this as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of like a standard just by being a reference. Yeah, I guess like you said, you had a good way of saying it, standards by example. It's not really standards. Yeah. They just made it open source. And because they did a good job, it's become a de facto standard. There we go. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, so yeah, it's optimized for mobile, um, clearly. Um, it has very good integration with Objective-C, which you might expect because they're both, you know, compiled down to the same thing. So basically, um, have you ever used SWIG, Patrick? Uh, no, I'm going to go with no. Okay. I think I have, so but just go with no. Okay, just go with no. So yeah, SWIG is uh, this thing that kind of, uh, it, it, it inspects your code and it generates stubs in another language. So in other words, let's say you have a bunch of C++ code, you use Swig, and you can create like Java files, um, like Java source code, where when you call one of the Java functions, it knows to go and call the C++ function. Um, this works kind of similar. So there's an idea called a bridging header, and you just tell the, um, you tell Xcode in the project um, what Objective-C files you need to access from Swift and vice versa. And then it, for each of those files, generates a bunch of wrapper code under the hood. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, it just kind of, it's one of these things that just kind of just works. So um, the functions in Objective-C, you can just call them from Swift and vice so versa. I hope it works better than extra step. swigging C++ code into Java or calling into C++ from Java, which we do, I have done before, but yeah, it was always kind of messy and it never works quite like you want it to. Um, yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the issue with the C++ to Java is they have different VMs. Right, you, well, that was always a problem, like, uh, well, kind of different binaries, right, is one way of kind of saying it to hand wave a little. So you yeah, have right. like the C++ needs to be compiled in one way, the Java in another, but then the Java needs to know how to call into the compiled C++ and then how to interpret kind of the results that come back. Um, yeah, because like they use a different is, standard for it. C++ is like, is not a VM and Java is the JVM 
And so there's not really like a meeting point there, you know. I would imagine that if you if you built C++ code with Clang and you and if Clang had a Java compiler, I don't know if that's true or not, or rather if, if LLVM had a Java compiler, oh. then maybe you could do something more sophisticated <laughs> because then like those two languages are meeting well, at the LLVM level. So like I know there's a uh, Python can call into C++ code. It's much cleaner. Um, yeah, like there's the, the boost Python. I've seen that. Yeah, well, and, and other ways. Yeah, yeah. But they kind of built it in for it. Yeah, there's like ways to do like the C++ optimization is just really fast. And so you just want to have a Python scripting of calling this. Uh, and it, it works pretty cleanly. Oh, okay. Uh, but there again, like that. Uh, yeah. So it can be done good or bad. <laughs> but you're yeah, saying yeah, that Swift like Objective-C is done pretty well. This one was done really well. Like I, uh, I took an Objective-C library and added it to some swift code and uh it just worked i was actually rather surprised but i think the reason why it works so well is because of this this llvm middle and that's middle important layer. for a new language because initially there won't be a lot of swift libraries right so like it will be good that you can right. use the objective c libraries yeah i mean you basically get yeah all of the objective c libraries you kind of just get for free which is pretty cool um Cool. So yeah, there's a there's a blog about Swift. There's a Reddit subreddit on Swift, and uh, uh, check it out. It's pretty cool. Um, and you can I've be one of the first. Of it's still it's still time to get on the ground floor. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you make even something which you might think is mundane, like a you know I don't know a calendar app or some library to help you, uh, you know, talk to Facebook or something. I don't know and you use Swift, it could actually end up being really, really, really popular because there's not many out there. Or you could like fall into like some sort of, you know, it could bomb, right? Like, we don't know. You, you like it though, so Jason sounds like I he think gives it's, it a thumbs yeah, up. Yeah, I think it's pretty solid. I do, one thing um, they're on the fence about, I'm not crazy about um, the fact that this isn't like an obvious decision, but they're still trying to figure out what to do with the compiler, like whether to open source it or not. Like if you read blogs from the developers, they're, they're, the blog literally say, we don't know whether we're going to open source it yet. And uh, that always makes me uneasy because, yeah. um, you know, if you don't open source it, it really can't gain traction. Like, well, it could, like but it's just very dependent on, in this case, Apple, right? Like what Apple, if Apple decides for internal reasons to cancel it, it may have been a good, like community may have wanted it, right? But like Apple decides not to do it. They could open source it at that point, but you know, it's always better to kind of open source it early and have input and everybody on board yep. from the start. Like what a disaster C Sharp was. Like C Sharp is actually still surprisingly popular, but yeah, like a lot of people write C Sharp code. They had Mono, which was like the open Mono source that's to basically reverse engineer. Yeah all of C-sharp. And then for a long time, Mono didn't work 100% the way C-sharp did, like the Microsoft compiler did. And so just the whole thing is kind of a nightmare. And by the time it stabilized, I completely lost interest. Um, but, you know, let's hope that that doesn't happen here. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thanks for all the letters, letters, emails, uh, and yeah. postings. We see them occasionally on the, although we just talked about how antisocial we are, but we do see postings on Google Plus and Facebook and Twitter and the emails, and we do appreciate their community involvement. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We definitely, uh, you know, we've been making a habit of talking about um, an email or a, or a Google Plus or Facebook post uh, in the beginning of the show, and that's because we've been getting so much good content from you guys and so many good. Well, we'll probably offend so. a bunch of people because we don't talk about theirs. Uh, if we offended you, send us another email. You can, you can get all the are. money you paid for this back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh man. <laughs> but I can't give you back the hour of your life. No, that part you can't get back. So. Uh, but you can't give us back the bandwidth either, so it's we're even. <laughs> okay, this is Devo. All right, till next time. All right, guys, catch you later.
The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.